You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Start with the scholarships. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. Hey, and Mike Brennan. And we want to welcome you to the Monday, March the 8th, 2021 edition of the M Squared TechCast. Uh, we've got a good one for you here today. We are going to start with um, someone from my employer, Lisa Kiawa, who is the Associate Provost for Enrollment and Outreach at Lawrence Technological University. Um, and Lisa, we have some exciting news about a new scholarship opportunity for students in uh, a certain majors. So let's talk about that for a minute if we could. Okay, thank you so much, Mike and, and uh, Matt. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about the scholarship. So, as you know, obviously, uh, we're, we are a technological university focused with technological degrees, very focused in STEM as well. So we decided to ensure that more young people could participate and take on a degree in a STEM field and are offering a scholarship for four or five years, depending on how long the student stays, um, if they majored in chemistry and physics and biology and uh, chemical technology um, in uh, radio and uh, TV broadcast. So programs that have a STEM focus, uh, that student will receive close to $80,000 of a scholarship uh, uh-huh. to pursue that degree. Let me ask, I know you guys do architecture as well, and that's why we call it STEAM. Are the architectural students eligible as well? Um, right now, these are focused in engineering, technology, science, and math. Okay. Um, and uh, But architecture students also receive scholarships. They're just different types of scholarships. Uh, okay. So, so this brings close to $20 million at the university it takes out of its own uh, pocket to provide students a great opportunity to get a to pursue a technological degree. And so it's... So Matt's not going to get a raise this year then because those students are going to get that money. Is that right? So As well, they should get that money. <laughs> and, and the other thing too, what's very important is we want to have diversity on the campus, both in the form of men and women uh, and different ethnicities, uh, more international students. So when you look at these kinds of degrees, you know, uh, these are degrees that should be focused in those areas. Um, women should pursue more STEM degrees, right? Women and minorities in particular have a great opportunity to pursue technological degrees and earn a great living. So these are the kinds of degrees we want students like that. But we also know we want to lessen students' debt. And by mm-hmm. offering these STEM scholarships, we give students the opportunity to earn a great degree, get a great job, Great return on their investment, but also lessen the debt over the over the four to five years. Yeah, I, I just read something last week that uh, said that these days a bachelor's degree is worth a, a little over two and a half million dollars in earnings over the course of a lifetime. So that's really? a, that's a pretty good investment. Yes, and I, I say to students all the time, Matt, as you know, we've been on the trail together uh, during during the pandemic. 
you know, we want students to uh, impact the world, the region, um, the globe, right? And we want them to do that in a variety of different ways. But one thing is we want them to be motivated to do the positive. Look at the positive. Don't take everything that's going on in the world, right? This is your moment and take it. And so these are the kind of degrees that students can actually pursue and really get a higher level position with a bachelor's degree, which is great for them. Mm-hmm. And so as someone who's been covering technology for 40 years, I can tell you most of the meetings I ever go to are white males. So uh, I don't think the numbers are up yet. I know it, it's improving a lot from when I started a long time ago, but it's still distinctly a minority for people of color and women in tech. Exactly. And that's why if I could just pivot for a minute, we started an early middle college with the Detroit Public School District with Henry Ford High School. And that's we started with 11 students. We got started a little late because of the COVID situation. But these students are amazing. They took our placement exams and our uh, the person who scored them said they placed higher than our own uh, our own incoming freshmen. And so mm-hmm. these are students that will get a high school diploma. They will get an associate degree from Lawrence Tech in technology, design, or computer science. And at the same time, we're giving them half off to pursue their bachelor's degree in that same area. So these are almost all women, they're minorities, um, and we're so excited to have them as our first cohort for that early middle college. Yeah, that that has been a struggle for a lot of universities like Lawrence Tech. I mean, we're up around 30% women now, which is better than it used to be. And there are certain programs where it's pretty much 50-50. I know biomedical engineering is... um, and you know, and, and certain other programs, but it it has been a struggle for us, and that I think is why some of these programs are so important that we're forging with these individual schools. Um, to give me a couple of highlights. I know we have something like forty agreements with high schools around the Detroit area. What are what are some of the highlights of those programs? Uh, for yeah. You? So so thanks, man. So we have forty partnerships with the high schools in and around Michigan. We actually, what we did is we have uh, dual enrollment programs as well as early middle agreements signed. We are just signing three in addition to the other two that we have. Um, And these agreements provide students not only the education, a scholarship, uh, mentoring, support services, summer camps that they can get involved with so they get a better idea of what that career looks like for them. Because even though they may say, I want to be an engineer, they really don't know what an engineer does, right? Mm-hmm. So so these are the kinds of things uh, we have. The other, other cool thing is we've sent out notices to teachers in high schools and said, hey, you want to teach a college course, we will help train you. We will get you prepared and uh, give you a credentialed certificate so you could actually teach the course in your high school. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to branch out and once again, provide that opportunity to students, to parents, and to districts to offset uh, education or opportunity for their students. Now, I know there's a list of, I believe it's 14 programs that are eligible for these scholarships. Um, how, how was that list developed? So that list was developed by <clears throat> sitting down with the four deans of the four colleges, identifying where the skills were that we needed, where the jobs uh, were, and really, and Mike brought it up, looking at where is the biggest gap in terms of women or minorities. Um, and so these are the ones that came through. And, you know, let's just talk about females. Sometimes um, the idea of a, um, a woman majoring in biology, chemistry, or physics is very scary. But 
we have great young women faculty who teach all of those three programs, including engineering. So, so it's important for students to know that you can get this great opportunity, get taught by another great woman, and really uh, showcase your skills to an employer. And with our faculty in those particular areas, they have patents, they do applied research, they do lab work, uh, they have student projects with industry. So all the students that get involved in that would be involved in that type of work as well. Hmm. And I know uh, we have an increasing, in fact, I'm, I'm working on a story about this right now for both the news release and a, the LTU magazine. We do have an increasing amount of industry-sponsored research going on at the university, right? And, and undergraduate students can get involved in that and really do meaningful research, which is kind of rare. Um, not that I mean to disparage the big schools, but at the bigger schools, undergrads don't often get a chance to do that kind of research. It's so true. So Dr. Mogul, our president, Dr. Soap, our provost, they both say that, that this, this university has much more applied research than it ever did before. It's getting more so. And for undergraduate students to have the capacity to get in a lab or get in a uh, a, an industry-sponsored project with a faculty member gives them great skills. The other thing that I'm really glad Matt brought this up, so we have a research day on campus, and now members of the partners of our high schools, we're going to bring those students here, too, to participate in mm. poster uh, projects, to show them what the research is, to see what they're doing, so they understand that kind of added advantage in pursuing a technological degree focused in STEM, they'd be involved in these kinds of things too. So at this point, where are we with, uh, with uh, coronavirus restrictions? I know we're still looking at mostly online programs for the summer semester, but by fall, hopefully knock on wood, cross your fingers and your toes. Yeah. (laughs) We'll be back in, in the classroom as normal. Right. So as you know, so summer, we started really before the pandemic. So for the last three years, Everything has been online. And actually, the students and the faculty like it. Students like it because we have a lot of athletes who live out of state or in the Upper Peninsula, and they can go home and take one of the classes online, right? So Mm -hmm. that helps. The second aspect of that, it worked because we have the technological aspect of the laptops and the software. So that was perfect. And so we're going to stay that way for the summer as well. We are going to have some on-campus classes, some lab studios that both engineering, all four colleges say they need. Um, but in the fall, everything will be on ground with the exception of certain courses. And we'll follow all the guidelines like we have been doing. Um, and Ashley, we've been very, very, our Dean of Students has done an amazing job. So we're very lucky that we've had a good team to work at this. So do you take students' measurements, measurements, temperature? I mean, uh, the little machine where you shoot their forehead and it comes up with the temperature, not measurements. Um <laughs> To make so sure every, that they the, don't have a fever or anything like that? What what are your protocols? So every student has uh, what's called a Go Canvas page, and they have to answer questions all uh, every, each and every day when they get up. Um, and if they answer something negative to three questions, then they're quarantined. Um, uh-huh. We have a whole process that goes through where those quarantines happen, how long they're quarantined. We have situations where the food's delivered to them. Um, and mostly it's been with the athletes, as you can imagine, because they're together during practice, during all these right. things. So, but having said that, we have had mi- literally no breakouts in the classroom, which is great because we have, everything has been six 
put distancing. And so what will happen in the fall is very similar. If Governor Whitmer says, okay, now you can go down to three or you can go down to four, we'll do that. So we're already in the planning stages for that. But we're thinking positively because our students want to be on campus. The atrium today is so loud, which I love, uh, is by where the fa- the cafeteria is because students are out and about. And that's a great thing. Okay. Yeah, I, I know our offices for marketing and public affairs used to be just off the atrium, too. And it, it, was, right? it was really lively. I mean, that's a, there's there's nothing like a student union when it's happened. It's a lot of fun to watch. Absolutely. Absolutely. So We're so down, we're down to the last minute, by okay. the way. So let's tell folks how they can get more information about these great scholarships. Yeah, especially the scholarships. So um, you could go to ltu.edu and click on scholarships. You can email admissions at ltu.edu and ask about the STEM scholarships. You can email me at lkujawa at ltu.edu. And I'm happy to tell you, we've had a lot of students apply for them. And so uh, we're very excited about uh, the potential for these students. And and we have a lot of parents that watch this uh, that probably want their students to get a technical education. So uh, they'll be happy to hear that they won't be spending quite as much money. Exactly. Absolutely. I think that's a great, all of us need to be focused on much of the outreach we do is to say, don't look at the price tag because there's so many opportunities for students that we lessen that uh, for the fact that we want them to pursue a degree that they will get a great job. And as our president and provost say, won't come home to live in their parents' basement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks very much, Lisa Kiala. Okay. She is Thank you. she is the associate provost for enrollment and outreach at Lawrence Technological University in Southfield. We'll be back in just a minute with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. For right now, it's Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan, and you're watching MITechnews.tv. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. We're back. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M Squared TechCast, MITechnews.tv, at Podcast Detroit, and wherever you can get a really good podcast, like this one. And we have with us at the moment, Fred Brown. He is our favorite epidemiologist and infectious disease expert. Uh, He's been involved in a whole bunch of virus creation and pandemic response uh, down through the decades. Um, and he's going to tell us today a little bit about uh, where we are with uh, the vaccinations and, um, dare I say, a bit of good news, maybe, kind of, sort of? Absolutely. Yes, lots of great news to report. I, okay. I, uh, I, uh, I, I was working on some of the, uh, talking to some of my epidemiology friends, and we've done a survey to decide, you know, what kind of activities we think we can do uh, 
after we get vaccinated. And so I'm still mm. clearing through some of the data. I can sort of show you some of the initial stuff, uh, but uh, it'll be sort of, I think it'll be sort of interesting. And I also want well, to- Well, and the CDC, CDC just came out with some guidelines today, right? About what people can do after they're fully vaccinated. And I want to, before, I, yeah. And so before I, uh, I, I was planning to go and talk, uh, you know, uh, about that in some detail, but I want to take a look at, in, at the CDC guidelines before I, before I talk out of turn. So okay. uh, I've changed my, I seem to talk slightly, but I, uh, as a result of that, but why don't we go into some of the things that we what have been happening? Let's okay. see if I can find, uh, where was I here? Well, basically I think what it boiled down to is that, is that we can see each other more often uh, once we've all been fully vaccinated, but you can't really go full love potion number nine, right? And uh, <laughs> start kissing everything inside. Well, yeah, that's still, not a, good I- for me. that's still not a good idea. So, <laughs> love potion number. I, I yes, I remember that song. That was a yeah. good So I will. I will. Um, let, let me show you what I've got, and and we can kind of talk talk through where we are with the vaccinations, and then next week, if you want, we can talk a lot more. Oops, about. This is the, whoa, 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 the oh, of the discussion. So the first thing is that we are sadly still a top 10 country for COVID. We've got, we've got, you know, our, our rate of COVID uh, is at about 179 cases per hundred thousand. Uh, and that puts us at about, uh, you know, number one, well, other than Brazil, we're, we're the largest big country to have problems like at that level. Brazil's at about 300. So we're, they're a lot worse. The heck's but, going uh, on in Sweden. They're in a bad way too. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, France as well. Europe generally did some really stupid things. <laughs> Is that a technical term? Or, uh... We'll talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, easy on the jargon there, Doc. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Europe made some big mistakes in the vaccination. They're going to be paying for that for probably years. Probably about three or four years, actually. Sadly, they they uh, they made some mistakes, but we'll we'll talk a little bit about about that um, in some detail. In, in Europe, uh, actually, I can talk, tell you right now. In Europe, basically, they got off to a really slow start. Their vaccination rates are about uh, about uh, are about one third of ours right uh, right now. They're, they're, they're at about uh, they're at about six six uh, percent vaccination. We're at about uh, we're we're closing in on nineteen twenty percent vaccination, as I recall. So uh, we'll get into some of the real numbers later. But there's are three times lower vaccination rates. In addition to that, they're fighting off the B one one seven variant, which, which we talked about last time. That's the big UK variant. And what they're finding in the big UK variant is a couple of things that are pretty interesting. The first thing is that it is infecting uh, children uh, at a much higher mm. rate than we were expecting. And so uh, they, oh, they went back to school and now the school children are getting B117 variant, bringing it back home, spreading it mm. among the teachers. And because they haven't vaccinated preferentially people in middle age, the middle age groups now are really getting a bad, a bad dose of the uh, uh, bad, bad case. And right now the B117 virus is about 50% of the total variant uh, in that, in those countries. Um, now we're going to face a similar situation in, in about April. We're going to go to about fifty percent of the variant, certainly in Florida, probably Texas, uh, and certainly in California. Hmm. When you hit that rate, we may see the same thing in those in those areas as Europe is today, which means a very high, you know, sadly, you know, very high death rates uh, and very high infection rates because uh, there they kind of are getting a. Uh, this variant has become dominant in, 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 in Europe earlier than it's going to become dominant in us. We're going to face dominance of the B117 virus probably uh, starting in, in many regions of the country by, by May, June. 
Luckily, though, and that's why that this race to the vaccination is, is going on right now, because it turns out the vaccines are effective against the B117 variant. We're not so sure about the, the South African variant, as, I, as we said, and, and, and the Brazilian variant, the P1 and the 311 and, and the B1351 variant. We're not sure that our vaccines are completely protective. Well, we're pretty sure they're not completely protective, but we're not sure that we'll have to create a new vaccine as a result of, of the lack of protection. But the B117 is susceptible to our vaccines. So if we can get vaccinated fast, we can avoid what Europe is going through right now. Mm. The other thing they did is they, is, is they completely messed up. Uh, they bet on a large, well, I shouldn't say that, but they, they basically bet, bet a big, had a big bet on Sanofi. Sanofi was delayed by nine months because they, they messed up their phase two clinical trials. They, be, they made a big bet on AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca turned out to be not effective as the other vaccines. They made uh, a big bet on the fact that they could all work together and they're all splitting apart, unable to work together <laughs> or negotiate collectively. Europeans, what can you say? You know? uh, they made some big mistakes. Uh, so they, yeah. they all hate each other way worse than they hate us. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened is, you know, uh, I, I'm a Swiss citizen as well as a U.S. citizen, and so, and, and we're not part of the EU, by the way, because of this problem, <laughs> as you know. But uh, but Europe basically they say healthcare is a part of national defense, therefore every country is responsible for their own healthcare. And uh, what happened was they said, ah, you know, COVID is pandemic. We're going to be responsible about this. We're going to negotiate together as a bloc. That'll reduce our price. So they focused a lot on price, not on not not on uh, mm. whether or not they were going to get the the thing on time. And so like. Like they got a nice low price, probably half the price we're paying, but they're not going to get it until you know June, July, August. You know, and that's a huge that 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 kills a lot of people. That's a big so, yeah. so that's those are some of the things that happen when you screw up. So <laughs> you advise me to visit my friends in Amsterdam at the end of summer, then, right? <laughs> I I, uh, I wouldn't. No, I was I kidding. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. I'll wait a year. I'll wait another year. You know. Yeah, it's it, it's sad. I mean, I shouldn't laugh about it, but it's it's a really because it, it's a sad thing. People are there are going to be a lot of people who die as a result of that. I'll, I'm I'm just curious when when do you think other countries will start letting Americans in again? Because oh. you know I, you still can't get into Canada. I'm sure if I wanted to do that, uh, you know, once in a lifetime Australia, New Zealand trip, uh, I, I probably could. I wouldn't be allowed to do that now either. Right. So, you know, when do you think that's going to start happening? So if you're vaccinated, I think you'll be able to get in at, uh, after you've spent, you know, uh, 14, 15, uh, 14 to 20 days after vaccination and have papers. Okay. If you're not, if you don't have papers, forget about it. Yeah. Really. Uh, they, they won't let, most of the countries will not let you in mm. because that, because we'll, what happens is that we're contributing to the overall gene pool. And we've got a huge number of genes that are going on. We don't monitor very well at all. We've got one of the lowest testing rates in, in the world. We have one of the lowest genetic, genetic uh, uh, encoding rates in the world. Uh, and so as a result of that, we have no idea what's going on in our country. And neither do any of the people who are, uh, countries who uh, are looking at our data and wondering whether they should allow visitors. So they're going to be focused on being extremely careful about their own citizens because we don't know what's going on with our own data. Uh, we're not, we're just not testing enough. So mm -hmm. they're going to be very, very conservative is my projection. Uh, I think in the United States, we probably will not have uh, COVID uh, vaccination papers required. So moving from state to state and, you know, kind of getting uh, going to various events that probably will be difficult for us to manage because we've had so much trouble with uh, tra contact tracing. However, if you go abroad, you better have your papers. So at any rate, this is what, what things look like today. So we're still a top 10 COVID country. And we're the, we're, we're the uh, other than Brazil, we're the largest top 10 
COVID country. <laughs> um, and here's what things look like nationwide. So you can see that, you know, we, we went up uh, for daily tests, we went up and we're down 20%. Uh, daily cases, we went up and now we're down uh, about, uh, you know, about five, uh, you know, we're down about five fold, which is great. Hospitalization went up and they're are coming down and, da and daily death rates are coming down slower than we'd like. And we think the reason that we're seeing a difference in the death rate versus the daily case rate uh, is because we're not testing enough. Uh, that's part of it. And part of it is uh, that people are living longer. And so uh, they're staying in the hospital for a longer period of time. Uh, and, and we're saving them, but it takes us longer uh, to, 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 to do that. And so um, we're, uh, that, 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 so the, the, the deaths are being delayed a little bit longer. You don't see the same impact as you did earlier. Now, Michigan, if you look at Michigan, Michigan looks pretty good you know, uh, comparatively, right? We came down uh, from kind of top, top, top rate of around 65, 65, Now we're down to the, you know, kind of 30, uh, 38,000. So, you know, in half, uh, better than, better than the rest of the country in terms of peak versus where we are today uh, by about, by about double. So that, that, you know, we did a really good job and people are wondering why we keep locking ourselves in and, but it really shows, right? It really, it really does make a difference. And here's daily case rate. You can see we had a peak early. We we shut in. Government decided to shut in, uh, and you can see that we we went down extremely rapidly, even during difficult times of Christmas. And 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 uh, uh, we can see the peak uh, at, at at Christmas and Thanksgiving. But fundamentally, we went down a, a, a lot faster uh, than the rest of the country. Same thing for hospitalization, and the same thing for deaths. Now, what do you think about? Governor of Texas coming out, Governor Abbott, who I, I know and love. He's a, <laughs> he's a great character. <laughs> what yeah. do you think about his decision to, you know, go ahead and open up everything? Well, in Mississippi as well. Yeah, Mississippi. Another, they, another, another, these guys are very nice people. You know, I've got nothing against them. In fact, I, I actually consulted Texas many times. Uh, so, you know, I uh, and for free, and I, I give them my point of view. <laughs> Sometimes they take it. In this case, they did not. <laughs> so what do you think of the decision? <laughs> Way too early. Way too early. That's, you know. Well, he's considerate. He's um, make these comparisons, but it's true. The Republican governors tend to let's get it open because businesses are dying and that's, you know, their constituents and they're getting hammered by them. Whereas the Democrat governors are more in general focused on let's keep people alive and then we'll get, you know, if they're dead, they can't go to these businesses anyway. Right. And they're also the Democrats are much more likely to listen to teacher unions when it comes to reopening schools, too. Uh, so. well, all those are good points. I've got a slightly different point of view uh just just to because if you look at what happened was you see uh if you go over the daily cases uh, uh and you look at that we had a we had a little hump and then we had a second bigger hump see that second big hump that occurred uh right around june july period last year in the pink that's the pink uh second from the left uh, on the upper side we saw that the second big hump you notice we don't have that hump but the rest of the country does have that hump you know what that hump was that was Texas, Florida, and California opening up too early. Oh boy! Mm. Yep, yeah, because they opened they opened up for like Memorial Day, right? Yeah, yep. yeah, and Fourth of July, everything so. opened, and so they didn't learn their lesson basically. Yeah. And this hump is likely to happen again. So we see, and it'll probably happen in a couple months. It'll it'll happen in you know kind of the April time frame. <clears throat> but you know what is common about both these governors is they both made and are facing huge mistakes. They made Texas made a big mistake with their power. Remember, it all went out. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. 
And it turns out that Jackson, they can't drink any water in the city. <laughs> so this mm. is in the capital of the city. So both these governors, I think, are trying to you know, give their citizens a break. Uh, to say it nicely, but or, or they may be opening up the you know the circus uh, to, to feed some Christians to the lions to have have them diverted into other directions like the like the uh, like the emperors of Rome used to do yeah. uh, because I think they're trying to divert attention from other problems that they've got and uh, it's it's sad that they're getting so much felicity because it's it's sort of these are sort of outlier groups uh, that are having to well yeah what, what what happened with the Texas power grid is pretty clear it only gets really cold in Texas about once every fifteen years. Yep. So, so they well, didn't bother to winterize anything. So yeah, all the oil well, that may be changing with climate change. So that's the point they're making. Yeah. This may not be an a hundred year event. This may yeah. be an annual event. Yeah. 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 yeah well, yeah. Because what I've been told is that it's not so much global warming as it is global weirding. The uh, extremes <laughs> of weather are going to get more extreme, and so you know they need to pay the money for the insulation around the wellheads and whatnot that all froze up. You know, in this last cold snap. So. And so here, so I'm just saying that these guys are probably trying to divert attention of their own citizens from their own incompetence in certain other areas to say, hey, great news, we're going to open up uh, and be different from everybody else uh, to, give the, to give the citizens a break. And so we shouldn't necessarily follow them. And here's why. Here's what Texas looks like. Same comparison, right? And you can get a sense that their daily testing rate uh, actually has gone down significantly more than everybody else's. They're doing very, very little testing for a, for a, for a, for a state that is three times our size. Um, the daily case rate has dropped. So they say, ah, you know, we got our, but, it's, but it just now is jumping back up again, as ours is slightly in Michigan. Look at the hospitalizations, though. The hospitalizations are off the chart. The amount of very, very sick people these people have and the amount of deaths they have. They have a 50% higher death rate in Texas than hmm. in Michigan, 50% higher. So when people, you know, ask about, gosh, are we doing the right thing? You know, this is the difference between, you know, being a little bit more conservative, waiting a little bit and just letting things open up, up again. It, it, you know, there, it's an it's interesting kind of use of the word conservative there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes, that's right. So we're being very conservative in Michigan. Well, good for us. Okay. <laughs> and I think, I think it is paying off, you know, uh, at least, and, and I think Texas is going to suffer uh, tremendously, uh, sadly, but it's part of their, you know, that's, that's, that's what they've decided. Uh, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't get them not to decide that, sadly. So so we are, however, a top vaccinator overall. We're, we're one of the top three vaccinating larger countries in the world right now. Mm. And that is going to help us. And, I, and so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit more today. And here's the, here's the data. You can see that, you know, we're strong. Uh, obviously, uh, there's some smaller countries that are quite strong. Uh, and, um, and that's... Uh, and you can see Finland trying to get stronger uh, so they can uh, avoid the problems that Sweden's having. Uh, and same thing. And the UK is quite. Is, UK. Is and I see, uh, is that Algeria there below Spain? Uh, Morocco. Morocco. That's I it. Think, okay. Yeah, I'm straining yeah. my high school geography here. <laughs> uh, it's doing quite well. And the UK is actually, uh, is actually doing extremely well on, on a per capita basis. Chile is doing pretty well. So the, it's, it's quite distributed uh, and it shows kind of different policy, policy levels. Uh, even, even Brazil is doing quite well, uh, uh, on a vaccination basis because they, uh, they, they, they need to, because they're there. They let the, the, the thing get out. So out of control. Um, so here's what's happening in the United States. You can see that Texas should be about 50% higher than Michigan is, is, a, is, a, top, is, is a top half state. Uh, Texas is a bottom quartile state in terms of vaccination. They lost a little bit because they lost power and they got distracted. But you can see that overall, 
17.83% today of the population has been received at least one vaccine, and 9.3% are fully vaccinated, almost 10% of the country fully vaccinated. Michigan is, is, is ranked, I think, number 19 overall in the, uh, well, uh, no, it's ranked even better than that. Uh, 19% at one dose, 11% fully vaccinated. So uh, we're kind of a top 15 state, as I recall. Mm. Um, and, but in distribution, the other thing we look at is distribution efficiency. So here we look at Michigan a little bit more closely, and you can see that we're about 83% efficient. Uh, the best state in the country is Wisconsin. They're about 96% efficient. Really? For almost every everything that gets to them, they distribute like that. We're slower. We're sort of, uh, we're, you know, we're a top 20 state. We're number 19 right now in this capability. But you can see we got 3,000 vaccines distributed and only 2,500, I'm sorry, 2.5 million shots have been, have been administered. So we're falling behind. And you can see the coverage. Our coverage is actually strongest up north, right? You can mm. see how, how those are green and blues up north, except that that that, uh, that the one county, I think it's that Chippewa uh, County. I, I don't want to know my opportunity. That's, that's where... Uh, um, Wisconsin. Mer- yeah, it's Menominee, Mer- <laughs> Marantet, whatever it is. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, so that 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 county unfortunately is not very uh, is is has uh, has one of the lower distributed rates, and unfortunately Wisconsin, uh, you know, is, is is a state that's on fire. Well, so good that, for you, Ant- yeah. Antonagan is on top of it. They're in the uh... yes, yes, yeah. There, there are a couple. There are a couple of really you know well, very very well. But overall, you can get a sense that basically the lower path of the state's a little bit less covered in terms of pharmacies and vaccinator sites than the upper part of the state. Now, I can attest to that. I'm still waiting in Washtenaw County for my vaccine. <laughs> if, you lived, if you lived in we'll Dearborn, you could get one because Dearborn is now basically it's open vaccine for anybody over 65 wow. in Dearborn. And they're running a clinic at the uh, at the Civic Center. And on March 22nd, it goes to down to age okay. 50. And that's when my wife's going to um, get her shot. So uh-huh. I heard that younger woman, I know, Matt. So, uh, <laughs> oh, well, I have not yet received my shot. I'd love to have one, but I'm waiting my turn because I did help create the policies that are creating the fact that we're trying to do this in an organized fashion. So I've decided to at least follow the rules that I, I helped create. <laughs> and this is, so this is the distribution efficiency. And, it, and as I said, most are in the South. Now, what's interesting is if you look at actually vac- vaccinations, Despite the fact that most of our best distribution is in the in the UP and Northern Michigan, our our highest level of actual shot administration is all happening Oakland County, Wayne County, Macomb County, uh, and uh, and Grand Rapids, and the mm-hmm. other counties are lagging behind. So what's what's interesting here is that you know this is more than just a distribution problem; it is a, a vaccine acceptance problem, I think. Uh, that we're going to have and we're going to see happening uh, with sort of a north-south divide, if you will, uh, of, of Michigan. Uh, and I hope uh, that's not going to continue on too long because uh, it's going to affect our tourism industry. If people aren't vaccinated and, and, and you're trying to you know, bring in people who are vaccinated into these places, they're going to think twice about whether they want to get into a situation where there's a significant part of the population that has endemic disease, whether they want to take those risks. And we'll go into some of how, how, how much those risks are based on the vaccine you've had uh, in a second. But, you know, the, you know, Upper Michigan really focuses, has a lot of Tourism, that's their major industry, and that's going to be hurt significantly unless those those rates come up a lot. Here you can see that basically uh, the female 
uh, population is doing a lot better than the male population. The male population is, is laggards in thinking about it uh, much more than the females. They're almost double our rates of, of, uh, of completion. And uh, some of that might be because they, they, they do live longer in, 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 in Michigan. And, and this is focused on initially our, our, our vaccines, as you can see below, are focused much more on the, uh, the elderly. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, too, if it's because a lot of the people who got vaccinated first were frontline healthcare workers, and that's a lot of women. That's a good so, point, too. So there, there are a lot of factors in here, but basically the, the men are at higher risk but are, are, not, uh, are not doing as well. And here you can see the, this is the percentage of patients uh, uh, actually vaccinated, and this is important for herd immunity. We, this has to be up toward uh, about 80% in order to get herd immunity, uh, and so you can see we've got a hell of a long way to go. Uh, and that's what people are worried about. If we continue at this rate, it'll be, you know, it'll be until next year until we actually get everyone vaccinated who wants to get vaccinated. Um, I, I heard an interesting theory about herd immunity, Fred. I wanted to bounce it off you this week. Yeah. It, is that we've had, you know, between the people who have gotten this and the people who have been asymptomatic, what do you think, maybe 15, 20% of the population has had this already? According to serology tests, uh, it's about tw- uh, right, right around 18, 19%. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, so if you want to get to 80%, then if you've got 20% of the people with antibodies naturally from having it, then you only get to, you only need to get 60% of people vaccinated, right? I mean, it, it's a little bit more reasonable target. It is a more reasonable target. The only issue is that that turns out that the natural uh, occurring antibodies are occur at a, at a much lower rate and aren't, aren't as, aren't, or don't last as long. We're seeing okay. evidence that the natural ones are about 50% protective uh, and last about eight months. So, uh, which is great. Uh, so if you've gotten sick, you've got some time uh, to get vaccinated. We recommend waiting about, uh, about uh, 90 days before you get a vaccination because you've got those antibodies that are going to fight the vaccine. You want to have a good immune response, <laughs> not one that's suppressed. Uh, so right. you need to wait a little while anyway, if, if you've been sick. But that, that, that's how, this is sort of how Michigan looks right now. Now, Mayor Duggan, if we dig down a little bit deeper into Wayne County, Mayor Duggan uh, said he wants to wait for the Pfizer vaccine. He doesn't like the J&J vaccine. He thinks it's a better vaccine. And um, it's interesting. I had a, I had a uh, you know, uh, someone wrote to me and said, Fred, here's my situation. Um, I am a uh, 61-year-old male. Uh, I've got, I, I'm, I'm, morbid, I'm, I'm obese. I've got a body mass index of over 40. I have smoke. I, um, I, I have two other, two or three other risk factors. So I, I did all the calculations for him and he said, I've got a choice. I can wait 35 days and I can get a Pfizer vaccine or I can get J and J vaccine tomorrow at the VA. He's a, he's a, he's a, mil, he's an ex-military. Uh, and so we did all the math and it turns out that if he does, if he, if he does, if he, if he waits the 35 days, during those 35 days, he's got a one in 80 chance of dying. Hmm. Uh, you know, and that, that's, that, that was a pretty, you know, if he gets, if that's, he gets, that's not good. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> that's, <laughs> if, if he gets the, if he gets the, <laughs> if, uh, meanwhile, because he's, he's, he lives in, in a different part of the country, which is undergoing quite a bit more there <clears throat> in terms of cases. Um, and, and, and so he's worried. And so if he takes, if he waits for, uh, uh, if he waits uh, for the Pfizer vaccine, he does get a slight Im- improvement. I think his, his chances of, of dying are one in 7,000, if if, uh, something like that, as I recall, uh, if he gets the vaccine, right? So all of a sudden, you uh, just imagine going from one in 80 to one in 7,000. That's a fabulous, I mean, that, that's a, a tremendous, you know, yeah. improvement. And, 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 but if he gets the J&J vaccine, he still has about a one in 5,500 chance. So 
you know, the question is, do we want to take that one in 83 chance for 35 straight days, or do you want to, we, we want to go with a one in 5,000 chance over that period? And the answer is you better, you better take that. He went and got the vaccine the next day. Yeah. Because that, that's the, diff, we're talking about that level of distinction. So this is why um, it's hard to make those distinctions. Here's what the J and J numbers looked like versus Pfizer, right? So Michael, Michael, who we all know and love uh, is, uh, you know, heart in the right place that I want to get the best thing for my people. I think Pfizer is better than J and J. Here's the, here's the problem. The first thing is that J and J and Pfizer, if you look at the data, we're in completely different pandemic situations. So here is the situation with, 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 with Pfizer. You can see that, you know, nice straight line. We've got steady state sort of increases in, uh, this is the cumulative rate of disease the blue indicates cumulative rate of disease, people who are unvaccinated with the vaccine. Red is the ones with the vaccine. Um, and on the, and we're talking about uh, on the, on the uh, left side of the page. So you can see that nice steady state, right? Uh, and, and it's going up pretty rapidly. And you can see that nice separation, huge separation between placebo and, not, and, 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 and vaccine. The, the issue is those first 14, 15 days. The difference between the situation in Pfizer versus the situation in J&J is Pfizer was working in a non-pandemic situation. J&J was in a complete pandemic. It waited three or four months. It didn't do the, its, its trial for three or four months later, and we were in a complete uptick. So you can see the difference in the curve. You see how much steeper the, uh, the curve is, especially in those early days? So they started their trial in the middle of a huge pandemic with lots and lots of disease everywhere. And so the problem was we all know that you weren't really protected in those first 14 days. And so you, but you still accumulate all those cases, right? The real, pro, the real challenge, the, the real issue is what happens after day 28. And you can see after day 28, everything starts flattening out um, on, on, uh, on the J&J. But those, on those first 14 days, you're really going up at a very steep clip. Does that make sense? So on one, you had a pandemic situation. That's that. That's J and J. On Pfizer, you had a pretty, you know, an, an epidemic situation. Uh, not not outbreaks. Um, in the the second big issue was J and J used severe, moderate to severe disease endpoints. So they were looking for people who had not only mild cases but also had a hospital significant situation, like a drop in oxygen levels or blood pressure changes or significant breathing issues. Right. You had to have at least another at, at, at Pfizer. All they said is if you, if you feel any, any, any symptoms at all, you go to a doctor, get tested and, and we'll take. And so if you got the sniffles, you got something you know, not, not so terrible, they still included you because they wanted to enroll fast. So J and J was looking at a very different endpoint than Pfizer. So not only is Pfizer collecting everybody, it feels even remotely lousy uh, versus Versus J and J, where you had to actually go in and have your you know oxygen levels below normal and things like that, in addition to having bad bad symptoms, you even despite that, you know um, J and J was at a huge, much much more steep cur curve than 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 Pfizer was, especially in the early days. And the uh, so if you really look at the data, what you're really interested in is hospitalization levels, and in each case they reduced hospitalization by a hundred percent. Not one person. In, e in, in either Pfizer or J&J &J went to the hospital if they'd been vaccinated, whereas, mm. quite a few, whereas quite a few people went to the hospital if they hadn't been vaccinated. And severe disease, uh, the difference between J&J &J and Pfizer was 4.8%.
So the question that Mike Duggan has to ask and answer is, is that 4.8% in severe disease sufficient to you know, start, put at risk or put questions in people's mind about how effective the J&J vaccine is? Europe made the same mistake. They said, you know that we like Pfizer vaccine better than the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so they decided not to get, you know, the, the Germans and the French said, we don't want that, that other vaccine. It's not quite as good. Well, look at what their situation is right now. Versus Britain, who decided, we'll take the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's made here. We like it. They're, and, they're, and Britain's doing much, much better than the, rest of, than the rest of Europe, as you saw. So here is the situation that Mike has to look at. Look at. You've got 67,000 people, 675,000 people in Detroit. Uh, the, they had 4,174 4, people die. That's about 11.3 people a day. It's higher now. That's on average. Uh, for the Pfizer death toll would have been, get this, we would have gone from 4,000 deaths to 422 deaths if we'd hmm. all had a Pfizer vaccine last year. That's how effective this thing is. If we, if we had the J&J, we had, would have had 626 deaths instead of 4,000 deaths. Still incredibly effective. So what's the break even? About 18 days. If you have, have to wait an extra 18 days to get Pfizer, you're going to have more deaths by waiting for Pfizer than if you had if you take the J&J test. And trust me, we're going to be vaccinating a lot more in 18 days in the next <laughs> in the next in the next months, right? So, uh, and also, even worse is if the U.S. government says, "Fine, we'll we'll divert the, the those J&J vaccines elsewhere, and we'll give you your normal allotment of Pfizer and J&J vaccines," th- three weeks of allotments. You'll have, uh, we'll have made up for all those deaths that we would have, uh, the, the improved deaths that Pfizer would have achieved. Three weeks. That's uh, so, and if we, if we create questions in people's minds and we don't have a high vaccination rate as a result of, the, of those kind of comments, of really 4.8% differences, and you're making those kind of comments uh, to the public and getting them nervous about it, and we don't have better vaccination rates, the impact could be really bad. So uh, he has taken a lot of what he said back, and this is why. It wasn't that he was under pressure to put a, a well, he was under pressure because he made a stupid mistake. But when people showed him data, right, they said, Mike, I mean, look at this. You're, you're going you're gonna to kill a lot of people. If, if, if we're going to vaccinate for more than three weeks, think we're going to vaccinate for more than three weeks? He said, yep, okay, then don't, don't say that anymore <laughs> because people wait or get worried. We're going to have big problems in Detroit. We already got enough of a problem in Detroit, and he agreed. So basically, that's that's the that's the math, and that's why we're saying if you have a chance to take the J and J test uh, uh, thing, or or get delayed and take a Pfizer Pfizer vaccine eventually, take the J and J vaccine for goodness sakes. That's a huge difference in the opportunity. If you need a booster, my guess is that we will have boosters for both J and J and Moderna and um, uh, and and uh, a Pfizer. Uh, by the end of the year, we'll all have to take boosters. So I think J&J will become a two-shot regimen. I think uh, Moderna and Pfizer will become a three-shot regimen. And chances are you probably at that point can mix and match, and you won't have any weights anyway until you get the benefit of both of them. So, you know, um, that's why we're saying take the J&J vaccine as soon as you can, because this is the kind of math that you get into. So what's nice about it is, uh, before Mike said anything, <laughs> was, is that people who are on the fence are starting to move toward, yeah, I'm going to take the vaccine. So you can get a sense of what happened. Uh, the biggest category in December was, I'm going to, I want to wait and see. 40% of people were saying, I want to wait and see before I take the vaccine. 
Um, and you can see that the number of people who are definitely going to get it or have already gotten it are really coming up the, up, up the curve. The people who are uh, saying only required are coming down. People, sure enough, who said, I definitely don't want to get it, the anti-vax population who have, who, uh, who, uh, or who have you know, uh, uh, medical reasons not to take the vaccine are remaining pretty steady, just like we thought. My guess is that we're right now, wait and see is down 50%. My guess is by the end of the year, by this fall, we're going to be down another 70%. So in other words, those guys will be up. Uh, we'll only have about 3 or 4% of people on the fence on this uh, by the end of the year, which means that we could get to about a 75% vax rate among adults. Now, don't forget, kids you know, uh, make up, a, uh, I think the adults are 260 million people uh, of a third, 330 um, million person population. So we're still going to have a lot of kids that aren't going to get vaccinated, a lot of reservoir uh, to continue the, 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 the vaccine cycles of life and then continue the mutations. But for adults, I think we'll be at 75% rates. And Matt, you said that, you know, if you add that together with people who've already been infected, maybe we're going to get toward herd immunity. I think we're going to be kind of on the edge. And as we talked about last time, there are going to be gaps. Some communities will be quite safe. They'll be at 98 and 90, 95%. And other parts of the community will be at below 50%. And so that those, those gaps are going to cause opportunity for the virus to continue to survive and thrive in those communities and possibly outbreak. Yeah, I was going to say it most dangerously mutate, right? So Yeah, the mutation part is the, big, is the biggest issue. Yeah. Which brings us to the next issue, and that is efficacy. What do we really know about it? And how are we doing for time? Are we doing good? Um, uh, we got nine minutes. Oh, my gosh. So we'll go quick. Basically, <laughs> basically we, we know right now. Oh, I'm sorry. This is upside down. I, I, I didn't get quite get to it. But we know right now, I showed this slide before. We know right now that the disease pathology, we have 95% reduction, 95% SC reducing disease pathology from very severe disease to mild disease. Everything turns into sniffles, right? And so that's, that's good. So we know that disease pathology, we've stopped. But what we don't know yet is transmission spread. We don't know whether we continue to transmit. In other words, you could have a very, the vaccine, you know, you, you, you can still get the disease and you could still have it in your heart and in your lungs and your nose and your mouth and continue to spread it, even though you don't feel so bad. And you'll, if you do spread it, you'll spread it to people who are more vulnerable generally, people who haven't been vaccinated, who could still get a very severe case of the disease. So that's the risk right now. We will know much more about transmission in about a month and a half. There are some really important trials that are going on right now. In about a month and a half, two months, we will really know the answer to this. Um, and we don't know about reinfection, whether eventually uh, the, the, the virus is going to change enough that it's going to come back and act as though it's almost a new disease and, ha and then continue to replicate and have, have fun with us, uh, continue to have opportunity to, to mutate and create variants, as you said, Matt. So... That's that, uh, that's sort of the issue is we don't we, we know for sure pathology. We don't know about transmission. They have done some real world studies in Israel. This is what the data showed. The data showed, you know, we had 778,000 people who weren't infected, uh, who, who didn't receive the vaccine. I'm sorry, 416,000 people who did receive the vaccine in the same community. And they looked at the infection rates and they found, look at that, 12,000 people got infected when they didn't have the vaccine, but only 254 people got infected when they did have the vaccine. That means the transmission must be lower. That's what their assumption was. Mm. In other words, transmission is 166 per 10,000 persons on the, in the people not having a vaccine versus 6 per 10,000 people in the, in the groups that did. Unfortunately, 
they didn't control for testing levels. And it turns out the people who did receive the vaccine uh, did receive the vaccine were able to go anywhere they wanted to without being tested. Whereas the people who didn't have the vaccine, they actually had to be tested at every venue, every event, every time they went on travel, every time they went into a, into a, into a large uh, in, in, uh, public environment, the Israelis tested them. And so they caught all the asymptomatic version uh, as well as symptomatic. So all we really did is replicated the same study we did before, which says we're better at reducing disease symptomology than we are. And we still don't know much about transmission, sadly. Even though it sounded like it was great opportunity, you can see this curve downward is very similar to the same curve that we got for reduction in overall disease pathology. So we still don't know the answer. We will know the answer when we do the controlled clinical trials. Um, uh, there's some that are going undergoing in, uh, undergoing in Amsterdam right now and in, in the Netherlands. Uh, and there's one that's going to start up in the UK. It'll be very definitive about how much we affect transmission when we have vaccines. So if we, so this is the, this is the cheese model, right? The Swiss cheese model of stopping the virus. And what happens is, as Matt said, you've got more fit variants who somehow can get through all these different barriers that we've got. The first big barrier we're going to have is vaccination. So, and that's why the vaccination rate is so critical. That's our first barrier, our first line of defense. If it gets through the vaccine, vaccination protections, then you want to move into your awareness. You got to be able to know, aware, be aware how much vaccine, how much, how much of this, of this pathogen is out there trying to get you. That's your positivity rates. That's how, that's the infection rates, case rates, level of general level of the R2 rates we talked to, the, the RT rates we talked about. All those things are awareness that you're going to have to have about yourself. Uh, in, in your environment and yourself as far as your areas of susceptibility. The next big level we've got is distancing, right? So if we don't know whether we are stopping transmission, then the next big thing we have to do is continue to distance, right? So we want to mix, we want to have different layers. First layer is vaccine, stops the severity of the disease. Second layer is distancing and masking. So if you're not sure, not sure about transmission at the first layer, you got to do it at the second layer, which means we're going to have to continue to mask and distance until we know for sure whether we're reducing transmission. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting there as an asymptomatic carrier, basically, transmitting to all the people who have, who have not been vaccinated yet the disease, and they can get very severely sick. So for that reason, the way you behave in the future, even after you've been vaccinated, is as an asymptomatic carrier. You've got to pretend that you've got the disease and you could spread it to anyone who hasn't been vaccinated. And so that gives us some thoughts about how to stop transmission. And we've talked about this before. Here are the mask levels of transmission. Uh, and 90, N95 masks are much, much better. So if you're wearing a mask, and the, so on the, on, the, on, the far, on the far left, you've got the COVID carrier. That person's not wearing a mask and you are wearing a mask, you've still got about a 70% chance. We, we think it's a little bit better now with improved mask protection. We think it's about 65%. Uh, you'll see those numbers later in a second. Uh, if, you're, if he's wearing a mask and she's still susceptible and healthy, she only has a 5% chance of getting a disease. If you're both wearing a mask, 1.5% chance of getting a disease. So now what we start to do an N95 mask, everyone has a 0.1% chance because it's so, it's so much more effective in blocking it. Technology does make a difference. And we can prove, this is what I was saying, we can improve from the kind of the 30% effectiveness to about a 40 to 60% effectiveness by doing some things with those masks, doubling them up. And now let's talk about the, 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 the scenarios that we're going to go through. And we'll go into this in a little more detail maybe next week. But basically, you've got unvaccinated and unvaccinated. And here, 
you can see that the chance of you guys, of these two unvaccinated, I'm sorry, one person being vaccinated and one person not being vaccinated, is that that vaccinated person uh, will, they have a 5 to 28% uh, chance of getting a low-grade disease. They probably won't get a severe disease, 0 to 15% chance, and they won't, they won't be hospitalized or die, versus the person on the other side who faces a much higher chance of hospitalization and, and, and dying, about a 1 in 600 chance on average. Hmm. So that, you know, that suddenly, you know, you can get a sense of if you're a vaccinated person and you're visiting an unvaccinated person, the problem is that you could spread very easily if you can still transmit uh, to the unvaccinated person. Now we've got a situation where same thing is true pretty much for the child. Now suppose both people are vaccinated. If both people are vaccinated, you know, the, the, the chance that either of them are going to get a um, an asymptomatic amount of disease is down to about 0.25%. If they both had to have the Pfizer vaccine, 0.25, or Moderna vaccine, 0.25. If both of them have the J&J, you know, uh, uh, again, about a 0.7, uh, 7.8% chance. Severe disease, almost no chance. And hospitalization and death, zero chance. Both of them have very little chance. So walking around vaccinated to vaccinated together uh, it creates a new risk profile, which is much, much lower than before when you had to worry about both people being sick and being contagious. All right, Fred, we're about out of time. We're down to the last minute. And the last minute is, if you wear a mask, these numbers get to be uh, so small. A lot of, a lot of zeros there. Yeah. That's right, right? So the idea here is that if you both are vaccinated, both wear masks, you have almost no chance of having the disease. And until we know more about transmission rates, uh, 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 then uh, until we know more, if, if it turns out the transmission rates are also reduced, it'll look like this also, by the way. Uh, but until we know that, if you wear the mask, this is the kind of race you have and do in performing normal everyday activities from versus 100 uh, percent chances uh, of, of not having if you're, if you're unvaccinated or unmasked. So that right. gives you a sense of the re- percent reduction you've got. All right, Fred, why don't you give your contact information real quick as we close out the show? I'm at FredBrown.com uh, okay. and I'll uh, be happy to take any questions you guys have at any point. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, well, want to thank Fred Brown and, and earlier Lisa Kiawa for my employer, Lawrence Technological University, talking about their new scholarship program and an early middle college program at a Detroit high school. Uh, we'll be back again next Monday at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time with another edition of the M Squared TechCast here at MITechnews.tv through our friends at Podcast Detroit. For right now, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we'll see you next week.